U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the guy who keeps me in line, Stephen, the XO. Hey, Steve. Hey there, everyone. Yeah, if I won't keep you honest, who will? Nobody. <laughs> so, we are back in the Western Theater of the American Civil War. We had, last episode, we had covered the Tennessee, Cumberland, and Mississippi rivers and talked about the Fort Henry battle. So we have three more battles to go over before moving on to the next area. So are you ready to get underway for some naval action? Let's cast off. So we're going to go to the Battle of Island Number 10. They can't think of a better name for this place than number 10? Apparently not. So, this was a battle fought at the New Madrid, a.k.a. Kentucky Bend on the Mississippi River. This lasted between February 28th to April 8th. So, here's a little bit of background on Island Number 10. It is named that because it was at one time the 10th island in the Mississippi River south of its junction with the Ohio. It was pretty much just a large sandbar. <laughs> Wait, so it wasn't even above the water level? It was. It stood about 10 feet above the water at low tide. So once in a while it shows up as an island. I mean, we don't know what the height is at high tide. It could be just, you know, an inch or two, or it could be underwater. But, you know, you wouldn't want to put a garrison on it, which is what they do if it's going to be underwater most of the time. <laughs> just give them some flippers. Yeah, but nobody can swim during this time, remember? Oh, right, right. The island was roughly a mile long and 450 yards wide. At the maximum width. Oh, okay. That's, that's actually pretty sizable to be calling it a sandbar. It's an enlarged sandbar. Okay, that sounds like something I'd see in an early morning commercial. What's the jingle to that commercial? I, I can't think of a jingle. I'm just thinking, like, are you unsatisfied with your sandbar? Look into natural ways to enlarge your sandbar with the Kentucky Bend. Oh, okay. I see. It's a male enlargement. No, no, joke. no. A sandbar enhancement. <laughs> uh, and, and before we get too distracted, um, I never heard of the Kentucky Bend, so I looked it up. What cartographer thought this was a good idea? It, uh, this just seems like Missouri should have a little more on one side and Tennessee should have a little more. How is that? What world of logic makes you think, hey, let's give that to Kentucky? I don't know, man. I am not a cartographer. I was not around when they were divvying up who gets what. All right, L listeners, do yourself a favor. <laughs> Look up the New Madrid Bend, okay? Th this map is a hilarious thing to behold. So, what he's talking about, if you're driving or something, is that the course of the river in the area that we're talking about is at the southernmost part of a clockwise turn of the river that goes about 180 degrees and is immediately followed by a counterclockwise turn that pretty much brings it 
parallel to the original course. And it's displaced to the west about eight miles. So, I mean, these are quite tight turns. The distance from the southern limit of the first turn and the northern limit of the second is about nine miles by air or 12 miles by river. So, and yes, this bend still exists. They did not flatten it out. Now, the water's not very deep. So, you know, people can easily wade through it, but not heavy equipment. So, because of this, this island, island, <laughs> was considered to be invulnerable to land attack from the Tennessee side. It also meant that the only route for reinforcement or escape was the Tiptonville Road, which was near it. The land on the Missouri side was at a higher elevation, but not high enough to give them advantages for plunging fire. Okay. The river banks had about were were about thirty feet above the low water line. And at high water, you know how Fort Henry was underwater when this, the uh, tide came in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guns on this island would not be drowned like it, like at Fort Henry. Oh. But they would not be any higher than the guns on the boats around them. So during the first year of the war, the Confederate forces in the West went through a number of command changes that, you know, are pretty confusing as of why they, they made the decisions that they made. Mm -hmm. And this also made it hard to hold people responsible for different decisions and actions that were made. Now, New Madrid is in Missouri, which was in a pro-southern part of the state. And so this fell into the command of the Confederate Department Number 2. Do you remember who was uh, the major general here? Uh, you'll have to remind me. Leonidas Polk. Oh, right, right. The man who has more than 300 soldiers. Yeah. So the region of the Bend was brought officially to one of Polk's subordinates, a Brigadier General Gideon J. Pillow. Now, neither Pillow or Polk was involved in the defenses at the Bend, but Polk did assign an army engineer, a guy named Captain Asa B. Gray to build up defenses in the area. Now, Gray, he took the challenge seriously, but he wasn't given the resources to do it, as you know, is a normal thing that's been happening. They have all these grandiose ideas, but they don't want to use resources to make them come to fruition. Okay. So on... September 15th, General Albert Sidney Johnston. He took command of Department Number 2. Polk was pretty much fired. But he stayed there. 
he became a subordinate to the new general. So, you know, I'm sure Polk took that well. <laughs> well, I suppose we will wait and see. Now, Johnston also was like, let's just look at this. It's a big sandbar, but it's nothing important. Eh, whatever. <laughs> it's just a pile of mud. And when it isn't mud, it's underwater. Some, somewhat. So, right when Fort Henry and Dolson Falls, General P.G.T. Beauregard was sent to the West to command the Army of the Mississippi. And this means that he became Johnson's second in command. He is the one that said, that's not a sandbar. That's valuable. And he issued orders to abandon Columbus and move on to Island number 10. Now, of course, he got sick. He probably got malaria or some sort of STD. And so he did not oversee this move. So while he was recovering, he and General Johnston were preparing preparations. That's the same word twice in a row. <laughs> <laughs> they were making preparations for the Battle of Sheola, which was coming soon. So... The local commander for Island Number 10 was a guy named Major General John P. McCow. And he stayed there until after New Madrid was taken by the Union Army of the Mississippi and then was replaced by Brigadier General William W. McCall. So all of these command changes, the Navy, the Confederate Navy, was led by the flag officer, George N. Hollins. I, I feel like that's a little low of a rank to uh, be leading a campaign. A flag officer? That sounds like an honorific title more than a, you know, hey, you have authority to tell folks what to do. Well, the flag officer is actually very high. Really? It is pretty much rear admiral or above oh right flag officers are the guys in charge okay see that, that that sounds like a boy scout troop title for ceremonies like you will be the flag officer no that's a flag bearer ah uh, okay yeah uh so because the river was in two different military departments hollands had to work with both the guy in charge of the New Madrid Bend, and the man that was in charge of the defenses of New Orleans. But unlike the Army, there was, no, there was not a lot of command changes. So on the Union side, the command structure was also in flux. But unlike the Confederacy, it didn't really have much bearing on what was going to happen. When the campaign against New Madrid began, the Army of the Mississippi was led by a Major General John Pope, and the Army was a part of the Department of the Missouri, and then after that, the Department of the Mississippi, which was under Major General Henry 
W. Hollick. Okay. Pretty much all this meant was organizational changes, and it did not affect their campaign at all. So they were quite more organized than the rebels. On the Navy side, the they were part of the Western Gunboat Flotilla, led by Flag Officer Andrew H. Foote. Foote it was a captain in the Navy, and the flotilla was organized as part of the U.S. Army, so he reported to Hollick and was under Hollick. So now we're going to get into the defense preparations. There was a lot of publicity given to the Union General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott. So the Anaconda Plan was put forward, and it made the Confederate government aware of the threat that would be posed by the Mississippi Valley by a waterborne invasion along the river. So what they did is they set up a series of defensive positions along the river, which was Fort Pillow, which was 40 miles north of Memphis. There were a lot of extensive works at Columbus and Kentucky, both of which were important positions to Island Number 10. Constructions of the batteries started in mid-August of 1861, and Captain Gray started laying out a battery on the Tennessee shore about one and a half miles above the island. This was going to be known as Battery Number 1. Ingenious names, isn't it? I mean, oh, very inspired. So, this would command the approach to the bend. The boats that are coming down the river would have to move directly toward the guns for more than a mile. Now, unfortunately, it was on low ground and subject to flooding, so it's not going to be very effective. Now, of course, when the construction started, that is when the capture and fortification of Columbus was going on as well. So Island Number 10 got put on the back burner because Columbus was more urgently needed than Island Number 10. So <laughs> you mean this little sandbar isn't the priority? Yeah, shocked, so they didn't I say get, shocked. Yeah, so they didn't get the equipment and workers that they needed. Now, that did change when Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson fell which means that Columbus was cut off from the rest of the Confederate army. And, you know, when they're cut off, you're going to get captured. Mm -hmm. So that's when General Beauregard orders that that position be abandoned as quietly as possible. So that is when they started arriving at Island Number 10, two days after they started their quiet retreat. And once they got there... Brigadier General John P. McCown says, I am now in charge. Let's strengthen the position. All the way from the battery number one, which I'm now calling Reedon Battery, to Point Pleasant. Oh, so we finally had a more inspired name change. Eh, it, it goes either way now. <laughs> so now that Columbus is done, he's getting the men and resources he needs. So he transforms the island and the nearby mainland into a formidable obstacle 
for any fleet that's about to try to go past them. So by the middle of March, five batteries containing 24 guns have been erected. My goodness. Yeah. There were 19 guns and five batteries on the island itself. They also had the floating battery, the New Orleans, with nine guns moored at the west end of the island. They also built two forts at New Madrid, which were Fort Thompson to the west with 14 guns and Fort Bankhead with seven guns on the east. The Confederate Navy also was there. Hollins, he commanded six gunboats in the river between Fort Pillow. I just, when I say Fort Pillow, it makes me just want to go to sleep. <laughs> or makes you think that this was a, a more lighthearted conflict. Yes. In the Civil War. Pillow fight! <laughs> but yeah, between Port Pillow fight and Island Number 10. All of these boats were unarmored. So the Union on the other side began near... Well, on the Union side, General Pope was given command of the Army of the Mississippi, and he assembled them in Commerce, Missouri. It was common practice at this time to build winter quarters for the winter. Yeah, back back in this day and age, trying to do any sort of military maneuvering in the winter was just... No. No. Do anything at all. You, you didn't want to deal with that stuff. Yeah, we... They weren't as silly as people trying to invade Russia. Yeah. Or Wisconsin. <laughs> Hey, one, one day the UP will be ours. It is our birthright. <laughs> but instead of that, Pope, he had his army of 25,000 march, taking over roads when they thought it was necessary. So they arrive at New Madrid on March 3rd, but of course not yet ready to attack the Confederate positions. So Pope, he prepares for a siege. He wanted to get some heavy artillery, and he got it a few days later on March 12th. So the gunboats under foot were repaired after the damage that they took at Fort Donaldson was repaired. <coughs> and they came down the Cairo on March 14th. Foot thought that they weren't ready for combat yet. So the Union fleet was augmented by an addition of 14 mortar rafts. These were boats with that mounted a single 13-inch mortar. And these were all under the command of a Army Captain, Henry E. Minard. Minader. Minader? Minader. Sounds like somebody mispronouncing my neighbor. No, I know the difference between my neighbor and my neighbor. <laughs> so now we get into the battle. So Pope want, did not want to waste his troops in a assault on the forts at New Madrid. So he sends a brigade under a colonel, Joseph P. Plummer, to take the town of Point Pleasant. This is on the right bank of the river almost directly opposite of island number 10. So this movement was countered by the Confederate gunboats. 
and plumbers boys they learned quite very quickly that they had to withdraw out of range when the gunboats appeared and then you know come back when they go away so the brigade occupies point pleasant on march 6th and the boats shell their positions for three days and the confederate army just stays in their fortifications offering no support for Hollands at all. Oh, that sounds kind of crappy. Yeah, it is. So the siege guns get there, and this surprised Hollands and McCown just as much or maybe a little more than the fact that Pope marched through the winter. Oh, no. Yeah. So this pretty much closed the river to unarmored gunboats. And it also prevented reinforcement of the artillery companies at New Madrid by shifting the troops from island number 10. Now, these new guns opened fire on New Madrid on March 13th. And they just keep shelling throughout the entire day. Oh, no. Yeah. McCown realizes that he's getting soft and for a attack on his forts on the regular approaches. And he's looking at his guys and saying, oh man, my artillery companies, these guys look dog tired. I don't think they're going to be able to resist. So he's like, you know what, instead of waiting, I'm just going to do it. And that night he gave orders to abandon the town and both of the forts. Luckily, there was a heavy rainstorm to help him retreat. This, you know, helped him hide his movements from the Union Army. So he was pretty much able to get out without any incidents at all. Well, that's good, at least. Now, the departure was so quick that the guns in the forts were not taken with them. They were spiked and left behind. Well, first time we've heard of somebody spiking cannons in a while. Yeah. And so the next morning, two guys that deserted the Confederate army walks up to Pope with white flags and tells him that the town is deserted. They all got out of there. Now, some of these guys withdrew to Fort Pillow because they needed a good night's sleep. It was about 70 air miles to the south and almost twice as much by the river because you know the whole the snake twisty part <laughs> mccown was replaced by brigadier general william w mctall now this might seem like he was being reprimanded for his defense but he was actually promoted to major general really yeah so i guess they liked him good for him i i guess they recognized that he did not necessarily throw lives away, or unnecessarily throw lives away. So now we get into the siege of Island Number 10. The gunboats and the mortars arrive on the 15th, which is the next day after Pope talks to the two rebel deserters. All right. So Pope is in New Madrid, and Foot is upstream of the bend. And they were separated by Island Number 10. 
Now, of course, both of these guys were butting heads on how to go about capturing the forces at Island Number 10. Do we know, like, what they were proposing on one end versus the other? Yeah, Pope, he wanted immediate action. He wanted to go right in there and take it. Okay. And Foote wanted to bombard it to soften them up to maybe get them to surrender. Foot was also hampered by not clear or maybe even contradictory orders from Hollick, who <laughs> himself is distracted by making preparations for advancing along the Tennessee River, which, you know, led to the Battle of Shiloh. So on March 17th, Pope is asking for two or three gunboats to run past the Confederate batteries because he wanted to cross the river and trap the entire garrison. Now, Foote, he's like, you do realize these boats are not invincible. I mean, they they might be. We can test that theory. He's like, there is a chance that a shot will disable one of my boats. And if it disables one of my boats, the Confederates have my boat. <laughs> so speaking of these river boats, I'm, I'm assuming they're not sail powered. Are, are these like steamboats or because you keep saying rafts? Well, rafts are rafts. Gunboats are better than rafts. They are self powered. Okay. Um, so rafts are completely at the mercy of the current and the oars that the crew probably bring with them. The oars, they're towed by uh by the powered boats, by the gunboats, things of that nature. I mean, the, the they're more for, you know, more emplacements. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, floating emplacements. They're not it, made for going around and shooting up the place. For a modern comparison, it's almost like a, a diving platform you would have um, at like a lake or something, beach, for swimming. But with a gun on it. It'd be like a barge with a gun on it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. But, you know, if that gunboat falls into Confederate hands, they could use that gunboat to threaten all of the northern cities along the Mississippi and its tributaries. And Foote is also still wounded. Remember how he was hit in, uh, in the hip? I believe it was. Yep. Nothing like a, and, a musket ball right on your pelvis. Yeah. And of course, it's not healing properly because this is the uh, 1800s. Th this is ye olden days where surgery yeah. involves here. Drink this whiskey. Bite this leather. And uh, please don't bleed out on my table. Or please bleed out because you have too much blood. <laughs> And so, you know, he's in pain, a lot of pain in our crutches, so he's not thinking the best either. So for the next two weeks, the fighting consisted of bombardment of the island at, you know, pretty long range, mostly by mortars. And the Confederate batteries, you know, they occasionally shot back, but, I mean, there's not much they could do at long range. Now... The mortars did not do what they expected them to. They really didn't do much damage to the enemy position. 
the most significant damage was actually self-inflicted. Really? Yeah. This was on March 17th during a bombardment. The gunboats were actually part of this bombardment, along with the mortars. A gun on the USS St. Louis exploded, killing three and wounding a dozen. Oh. Oh, yeah. wow. Yep. So, Foot, you know, he rejects Pope's request to run gunboats past the island. Hmm, understandable. Yeah. So, someone on Pope's staff was like, you know what? Why don't we just dig a canal and, you know, bypass the entire battery? And everybody was like, that's a good idea. We like to dig, right? We're the <laughs> army. That's what we do. We dig. They they are quite fond of building fortifications. So they start digging, and they get the canal done in two weeks. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, it was not deep enough for the gunboats. Oh, dang it. Yeah. Although they were able to use it for supply transports. So they were able to float supplies and, you know, communication. So Pope didn't have to rely on the guy on the horse or a bird. So Pope still insists that he needs a gunboat to cover some landings he wanted to do on the Tennessee side of the river. So Foote calls his captains together and he decided not to risk running past the batteries. When Halleck wrote to Foote, he said, give Pope all the assistance in your power. So Foote calls a second meeting of his captains. And this time, the commander of the USS Carondelet. That's a fun name. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the guy's name is Henry Walk. He thought that the risk was worth it. And he volunteered to take his boat through. So, it's on. Foot gives the necessary orders and the boat prepared for the run. She was covered with rope, chain, and, you know, pretty much whatever loose material was around. And a coal barge was filled with coal and was lashed to her side. All right. Her steam exhaust was diverted from the smokestacks to muffle her sound. And then she only had to wait for a dark night to make her run. So in an attempt to reduce the danger as much as possible, there was a raid by sailors in the flotilla and soldiers from the 42nd Illinois Infantry under a Colonel George W. Roberts, which overran Battery Number 1 and spiked its guns on April 1st. So I guess they played an April Fool's Day joke on them. <laughs> so the next day, the flotilla, which included both mortars and gunboats, concentrated its fire on the floating battery of New Orleans. She's hit several times, and her mooring lines were parted. And she started drifting downstream and they just waved at her. Bye. See and ya. She's out of the war. 
two days later, the conditions that they were waiting for were finally here. The night was moonless, and there was a thunderstorm that had come in. So the Karen Delete made her way downstream, and she was not sighted until she was next to Confederate Battery Number 2. And she might not have been detected at all, except that her smokestacks blazed up a bit. So they, they saw, you know, fire. The buildup of soot, which was not dampened by the escaping steam anymore, caught fire and revealed her position. And so once the Confederates saw her, they were like, uh, we need to fire on that. And they opened up fire. But, of course, their fire is not accurate, and the boat completes her run unscathed. Now, Pope, he keeps going to foot and saying, hey, look, it worked once. I need another one. Give me another one. It worked, <laughs> you see? So, two nights later, he sends the USS Pittsburgh to do it again. So, now that he has two boats, he is able to cross the river with his army, without interference from Confederate gunboats. And he's also able to use their guns to suppress any enemy fire that would have opposed their landings. Then on the 7th, he sends the gunboats to destroy the batteries at Watson's Landing, which is where he decided he was going to attack. When they were done destroying the batteries... They came back and carried the troops across and landed them without any opposition. So McCall's just sitting there for a couple hours and finally decided what to do. He's like, my position is hopeless. And so he put his men on the mainland and started them in the direction of Tiptonville. Now Pope's spies saw this and... His spies came to Pope and were like, hey, uh, they're leaving. <laughs> so Pope takes his soldiers to Tiptonville. And so this started a foot race rather than a battle. McCall, he was hoping beyond hope that the gunboats would not, you know, interfere with his retreat. But they did, which delayed the which delayed his men enough for Pope to beat him to Tiptonville. So this means that they were now trapped. They had no chance of winning. So McCall's like, all right, you got me. I surrender. You win. <laughs> Congratulations. And at the same time, Island Number 10, which is now completely surrounded, surrendered to foot which means that the river is now open all the way up to fort pillow yay so the destruction of the confederate garrison was leaked there was no chance of it being brought back because only a few hundred individual soldiers managed to escape now the actual number that were captured isn't really known. There's controversy there. Pope said in his reports that he had taken 
273 officers and 6,700 soldiers. The Confederacy says that, wait, we only had maybe 5,350 people there at all. So maybe 4,500 were taken? So, you know, record keeping. <laughs> people want to exaggerate their numbers to make themselves look bigger, too. Now, aside from prisoners, the number of casualties was actually pretty low. The Union, Army, and Navy lost only seven men from any and all causes. Oh, very nice. Yeah. They also only had four missing and 14 wounded. And during the entire campaign... They only reported eight killed and 21 wounded with three went with three missing. Now the Confederacy losses are not known, but they were probably similarly low. So right after the battle of Shiloh happened, pretty much Island number 10 just fell away from everybody's memory. They were like, uh, it's just a sandbar. <laughs> it's pretty much only memorable for the run that the USS Cordonlet did past the batteries. Everybody loves a good, you know, run. Whether it's a yeah. beer run, a smuggle run, cannonball run. Well, this marked the introduction of a new tactic in warfare. The use of steam for operating ships meant that they no longer had to slug it out with fixed forts. Hmm. Yeah, this tactic later becomes commonplace in the war. It was deploy employed by the Farragut at New Orleans, Port Hudson, Vicksburg, and Mobile, and by Porter at Vicksburg. So this also means that the value of fixed fortifications pretty much went away. Now, of course, the South... They do not learn the lessons very well. Oh, heavens so no. They could, yeah, they continue to rely on force until the end of the war. So that is island number 10. All right. Well, I'm really glad we didn't have to go through one through nine. Otherwise, we'd have a lot more episodes. Oh, I, island hopping is not a thing yet. That's World War Two, And, you know, the Pacific Ocean. This is just a <laughs> river. So I think that's where we're going to end it today because look at the time. What, a little longer than you were expecting? I did not think it would take an entire episode to go through that one battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Hero cards. I forgot the name of the website. All right. So we are partnered with herocards.us and together with them, we honor one of our fallen angels after every episode. So today we are honoring Commander Richard L. Sivoli. His hometown was East Greenwich, Rhode Island. He was assigned to Fighter Squadron 73, or VF 73, out of Quonset Point, Rhode Island. He received the Navy Cross, the Distinguished Flying Cross, twice, and the Air Medal eight times. His date of sacrifice was January 18th, 1955, in Jacksonville, Florida. He was 35. 
So Richard Leo Dick Savoli was born in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, on October 24th, 1919. He stayed close to home and graduated from LaSalle Academy in Providence, then completed a civil engineering degree at Rhode Island State College in Kingston. Nowadays, it's called the University of Rhode Island. He graduated in 41, and, you know, in 41, your future is uncertain because of world events. Yeah. Yeah, something happens near the end of that that kind of, Throws a wrench at many people's plans. Yes. So he works for a short time at a engineering firm and then joins the United States Navy in October of 41. So his time during World War II, he flew a F-6F Hellcat and at that time was a lieutenant. He served with the Fighting Squadron 18 or VF-18 aboard the USS Intrepid. During the Battle of Liet Gulf off of the Philippine Islands, he and his squadron strafed a Japanese battleship, silencing its guns. That is impressive. Mm, very. The next day, the then-lieutenant scored a direct hit with a 500-pound bomb, disabling a Japanese carrier. Very productive day. Yes, So, for these actions, he was awarded the Navy Cross. The citation reads as follows. The President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Navy Cross to Lieutenant Richard Leo Savoli, United States Naval Reserve, for extraordinary heroism in operations against the enemy while serving as pilot of a carrier-based Navy fighter plane in Fighting Squadron 18, VF-18 in action against major units of the Japanese fleet during the Battle of Liat Gulf from 24 to 26 October 1944. Diving with eight other fighters through intense anti-aircraft fire, Lieutenant Savoli strafed the largest ship of an enemy battleship force in the Siberian Sea, silencing many anti-aircraft weapons and inflicting casualties on enemy personnel. Attacking a Japanese carrier force off northeastern Luzon the following day, He dived through a terrific barrage of anti-aircraft fire and seriously damaged the carrier with a 500-pound bomb hit, again participating in an attack on the enemy's battleship force in the Siberian Sea. Lieutenant Savoli disregarded the terrific anti-aircraft opposition and scored a near miss on a Congo-class battleship with a 500-pound bomb. Then, pulling out, he made a second run to strafe a destroyer, silencing its anti-aircraft weapons and thereby contributing to our successful bombing and torpedo attacks which followed. Lieutenant Savoli's outstanding courage and determination were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Lieutenant Savoli was also credited with four confirmed aerial victories and three probable victories while with Fighting Squadron 18 during World War II, which I believe made him an ace. So to get an ace, you need... Five confirmed. Oh, is five confirmed? I you need five four. confirmed. So he, it sounds like he likely qualified in the number of aerial victories, but since three of them were unconfirmed. Well, no, he missed it by one then. Yeah. So that now we move on to his service during the Korean War. Savoli stays in the U.S. Navy and was called back to combat with the outbreak of the Korean War from 1949 to 1951. 
He served as the executive officer for Fighting Squadron 32, or VF-32, aboard the USS Lyette, CV-32. This was an aircraft carrier named after the World War II victory he helped to secure. Savoli led his squadron in a F-4U Corsair fighter-bomber. During his time on the Lyette, Savoli's squadron suffered the loss of Ensign Jesse L. Brown. We cover, we talked about him in a past episode. Mm-hmm. Just as a reminder, he was the first black combat aviator in U.S. history. And on December 4th, 1950, Savoli flew cover and called in a support helicopter attempting to extract Brown from his downed fighter jet. The loss of Ensign Brown was devastating to the squadron, but they pressed on with their mission. In the winter of 1950, Savoli and his squadron provided close air support against 70,000 enemy Chinese soldiers across the Yalu River, enabling 30,000 UN troops to escape encirclement. Wow. So after the Korean War, Savoli returned to his home state and graduated from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport. He was promoted to the rank of commander and assigned command of Fighting Squadron 73, or VF-73, in 1954. On the night of January 18th, 1955, Commander Savoli concluded gunnery training with his squadron and took off from Jacksonville, Florida, in a F-9 Cougar jet bound for Oceana, Virginia. Shortly after takeoff, Savoli's plane crashed into a heavily wooded area, killing the 35-year-old pilot. Richard Savoli left behind his wife, Grace, and his three children, Carol, Elizabeth, and Richard Jr., who was just one week old at the time. In 2005, Commander Savoli was inducted into the Rhode Island Aviation Hall of Fame, and in 2006, the U.S. Post Office in his hometown of East Greenwich, Rhode Island, was renamed in his honor. Commander Richard Savoli, thank you. All right, Steve, XO, would you like to take us out? Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If so, we would love to have a review from you. Give us some of your thoughts, your comments, and if you like, we can even read it on the air. If you'd like to uh, reach out to us, you can reach us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at usnhistorypod. We also have a Discord server if you'd like to engage with us more directly. You can find that link in the show notes. Until next week, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Mm-hmm.